there are two great threats to the church today. There are two great threats that if tolerated or left unchecked will rob the church of its influence, will empty the church of its purpose, will render the church impotent and powerless, and will seal the church in uselessness. I need to warn you this morning, these two threats are common today. They are sadly very common. They are gaining ground today, and they are dangerously present in churches today. And those two threats are the threats of worldliness and false teaching. Worldliness and false teaching. I believe today, if you look around, if you survey the scene today, uh, we are seeing church after church falling into their snares. And it may be little by little, but we're watching again, church after church falling into their snares. Now, I also believe that these two things are closely related. Now, what I mean by that is I believe when you find one, you will always find the other. And I believe when you find worldliness, you will find in that church also false teaching. And I believe where you find false teaching, it will be accompanied by worldliness. And I believe the two things travel together. Today, our message is entitled, The Quietly Compromising Church. The Quietly Compromising Church. Today, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. Today, we're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The Quietly Compromising Church. I'm going to ask if you would, if you would stand with me in the honor and the reverence of the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 12, God's word says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we come today and we rejoice on this day. We celebrate on this day. We have hope today in Jesus. We have a future today secure in Jesus. We have peace today because of the finished work of Jesus. Lord, we come as your church today, and I pray that we would be ready to listen. I pray that we would have ears to hear and a heart to receive and feet to walk out your, your, your direction in faith. And I pray, Lord, that you're blessed in what occurs here today. Lord, I pray it wouldn't be normal. I pray it wouldn't be the passing on of information. It wouldn't be a lecture, but I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us 
Our living God, our living Savior, through your living word, sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, I pray that you would speak. And then I pray, Lord, that it would bear fruit. In the days that we're living in, I pray that there would be a faithful church. I pray that there would be a faithful people, a witness to our glorious Savior, Jesus. Lord, we just give you this hour. We open it up before you. We pray that you're pleased in it, known through it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. God is speaking. I've been saying that every single week. God is speaking. In this study, at this time, for his purpose, God is speaking. I want to tell you, I believe in this study, uh, he is speaking to you. He is speaking to us. He is speaking to his church today. I truly believe that. God is speaking today. The question is this, are we listening are we willing to listen as a people? Are we willing to listen as an individual? Are we hearing what our Lord is saying to us? Are we ready to act? Are we ready to be found faithful? My prayer is that we are. Every week, every single week, I say when I, when I pack up and get in my car and go home, man, wasn't that right on time? Wasn't that right for this day? Wasn't that right for this week? Now, doesn't that exactly fit? Well, today I want to tell you it's going to be the same. God is speaking today. Let's go to our verses and begin. Beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. The verse starts off and it says to the angel. Now, we have discussed this and we have determined it is referring to the pastor of the local church. That's what it's referring here to here. The one who will proclaim and distribute the message. It says to the angel, to the pastor of the church. It's again a specific church in Pergamum. Pergamum was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, it was not a port city. It was actually 10 to 15 miles inland. Uh, it was not a trade city. It was not on a great trade route. It was actually a university city. It was known as a center for knowledge. It was a center for thought. And it was also a very religious city. Uh, in this city of Pergamon, there was a great medical school. Uh, it was based mostly on pagan worship, pagan ideas. But there in this city, there was a great medical school. Uh, in this city of Pergamon, there was a great library that had over 200,000 volumes. Now, the word parchment actually comes from the city of Pergamon. Uh, in, it, in this city, there were also many grand temples. There were many great temples. There was one to the pagan god of healing there with their medical school. Uh, the most spectacular one was to the god Zeus, and the historians tell us that in all directions, as you came to the city, you could see uh, the temple for Zeus. Uh, this city liked the idea of thought. They liked the idea of knowledge and the accumulation and the discussion of knowledge. They liked, in a mix with that, the idea of sophisticated worship of these false pagan gods. Where last week Smyrna was the center of worldly living, Pergamon was perhaps the center of worldly ideology. 
The verse goes on. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now, remember this from chapter 1. Uh, this represents the truth of Christ. This represents the truth of the word of Christ and how it separates, how it divides the truth from the non-truth. That's what this image is in the resurrected Christ. He coming from his mouth has a sharp two-edged sword. It is the truth of the word of Christ that divides truth from non-truth. Very simply, the word of God is the criteria. It is the standard. It is the plumb line because the word of Christ is the truth. And in the truth and according to the truth, all things are laid bare. According to the truth, all things are made known, are revealed. Now, that is a deep picture. Uh, that is a very profound picture. I will tell you, if we will back up and look at it for a second, if we will think about it, it is a great picture of our Savior Jesus. Now, I want you to notice this, and I think if we're not careful, we might move too quickly by this, but we're going to keep seeing this. I want you to notice this. Notice how the picture of Christ addressed to each specific church matches the need of that church. And that's very telling. That's just like our Savior Jesus. The picture of Christ that is presented to each specific church matches the specific need of that church that is met by Christ. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, all right, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus says here, starting the 13th verse, to this church, I know where you dwell. That's what he says. I know where you live. I know where you reside. The Greek word here actually means I know where you inhabit. The most literal translation is I know where you have settled in. I want to remind us of something here very quickly. For believers, our houses are not our homes. And I think we need to be sure of that. We need to be reminded of that. Our, our, the Bible says our citizenship is not here, and our houses are not our homes. Our house, that may be where we are residing at the moment, maybe where we have settled in, but it is not our home. And I want to remind us this morning, coming very soon is a day when we will vacate these temporary houses for a permanent home with our Savior, Jesus. It says here, I know where you dwell. And then it says this, where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It says at the last of the verse, where Satan dwells. And so his throne is here, and this is also where he dwells. This city, Pergamum, is named by Jesus as the place where Satan rules from, where he dwells. Now, I will tell you this, and you can go read a whole lot of stuff. No one is sure exactly why. No one's sure why this is counted as that. Uh, they speculate about that. 
Some say it's because it was of the temple to Zeus. And when you came in, there's this imposing temple and people would come and they would worship that false god there. And so they say that is why he says that. Others say it was because of the promotion and the enforcement of Caesar worship. As a capital city for, for this Roman colony, uh, it was a place where Caesar worship was not just promoted, but was also strictly enforced. Others say it was because of the vast immorality of the city, especially, especially sexual wickedness. I do not know why he calls it that. I'll just tell you, I do not know why, but I will say this. Satan is working in the wickedness of the worldliness in places like Smyrna. But Satan rules from the wickedness of worldly ideology promoted in places like Pergamum. And I'll just tell you, if you want to watch men toil in the destruction of sin, you can go and watch them in all of the worldly places. But if you want to watch Satan lead people to the destruction of sin, he corrupts their minds in the teaching of worldly ideology. All of that to say this, if Satan can corrupt the understanding of your mind, it will not be long until he's corrupted the attitudes and the actions that come out of your heart. Do you understand that? Satan rules when he controls the mind, when he puts in half-truths and no-truths, when he comes and he perverts the truth of Jesus' word, and when he corrupts the, the understanding of your mind. It will not be long until there's a corruption of your heart. Today, the world says very clearly, and it promotes God's version of creation. It's not true. It's not smart. It's not plausible. Today, the world says, and it promotes God's version of marriage and of human sexuality. It's not true. It's not smart. It's not plausible to uphold. Today, the world comes, and it says and promotes that belief in a supernatural Savior in the person of Jesus as the remedy for sin, that's, that's not true, that's not smart, that's not for sure plausible. question is this, what will the church say? What will the church say? I'm going to sound crazy right here. I was just thinking about this. I, that's okay. <laughs> This is going to sound narrow-minded. It's probably going to sound probably very simp simple-minded. I love to read. I love books. Uh, I, I love to go to bookstores and look around. I like libraries. Uh, I've got three books that I'm reading right now. I love to read. But I want to tell you something. It is my ever-growing conclusion that I've got all that I need, and I've got all that I can consider and I've got all that I can think deeply about, and I've got all that I can relish and treasure in one book, and that is the Word of God, the Bible. And I want to tell you, I would do well to spend more time in the Word of God, our Bible. In verse 13, it tells us of the steadfastness of this church. It reports to us, they held to the message of Jesus. They held to their faith their belief in the truth of Jesus, it tells us of an episode, they held to it even as a man named Antipas was killed for it 
as a faithful witness. Now, that's all we know about him. We do not know the situation. All we know is that Jesus said he was a witness, he was faithful, and that he was killed for his faithfulness. He suffered death. He tells this church, even in the day of that, even in the atmosphere of that, even seeing that, this church here in this city has held to the truth of Jesus, to the truth of the gospel. They have held firm. Verses 14 and 15 together. But I have a few things against you. Man, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Jesus says here, starting verse 14, but it is a conjunction of contrast, but unlike that, you have held fast, you've held to the truth, even under great persecution, but unlike that, he says, I have some things against you. Now we see here in the original language, it is more than one thing. Uh, here in this account, he tells them, of two things. Now let me explain these two things to you. First it says this. First you have some. Now notice it's not all. You have stood, but there you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam. It explains and it says, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. He says to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now understand, in the history of Israel, recorded in the Old Testament, is the account of Balaam. It's one of a couple of the great accounts that the Israelites were to remember, and they remember it here. Uh, Moab was watching Israel grow. Moab was watching Israel grow in power. Moab was watching Israel grow in size. Balak was their king, and he was intimidated as he looked at the Israelites, he was scared to fight them. He had a great army. He had fought many others. He was scared to fight them. He did not think they could win. And so he has a plan that he will hire a prophet named Balaam to curse them. He finds this prophet. He pays him. He pays him to curse them. The story goes along. Balaam goes. He overlooks them, and he tries to speak a curse and he can't. He tries to utter a curse. Instead, he utters a blessing. And so he tries again. He tries to, to speak a curse over them, but he can't do it. He speaks a blessing. Uh, Balak, the king, for sure is mad. He has paid them for a curse. He did not receive a curse. Balaam leaves, but Moses tells us before he does, he says this. Now, this is my paraphrase. It's a route to paraphrase. He says this. Before he leaves, he says this. If you can't curse them, you can corrupt them. And that's what he tells the king of Moab. If you can't curse them, you can corrupt them. And he tells Balak, the king of Moab, send your women in, and they will take them in, and they will compromise with them, and they will take on their ways. And they will, some of them will marry them. And it's what happens, and it results in the corruption 
of God's people. What happens is they become like the world around them, one quiet compromise at a time. Little by little, they take up the things of the world around them, one quiet compromise at a time. Now, I want you to see what's going on in their exact context. There in the church in Pergamum, it says they had started eating sacrifices made to idols. Now, this is the specific application. They had started eating sacrifices made to idols. Let me explain this to you. These pagan false worshipers, they would take an animal and they would offer it, they would sacrifice it to a pagan god. After that was done, they would take that animal and they would eat it. Uh, maybe they would have a party. Maybe they would have a celebration. For sure, it was in a meal. And so they would offer the sacrifice, and then they would take the remains of that animal, and they would cook it, and they would have a meal. Well, these church members, they would forego the sacrifice. Hey, we're not worshiping a pagan god. Hey, we're better than that. They wouldn't go to the pagan sacrifice, but they would go to the meal and eat the remains of the sacrifice. And let me tell you what the deal is. The deal is this, the world couldn't tell the difference between them. And so they might say, we're not like you, and we don't worship like you, and we're going to refrain from this. But they would go to the celebration, and they would eat with them. And the world couldn't tell the difference between them. Listen to me this morning, especially in our day. Listen to me carefully. The approval of sin is the same as sin. You understand what that means? The church has to stand. The church can't accept worldliness. The approval of sin is the same as sin. On top of that, it says acts of immorality. Uh, I read where all sorts of sexual immorality uh, were seen as sophisticated in that city. They were seen as acceptable in that city. Well, the church also grabbed onto those practices as well. And they would say, well, we have the truth of Jesus. We have the truth of the gospel. But our sexual practices are going to look like those of the world. And we will hold this truth, but we will practice those things as well. And the church quietly compromised with worldliness. Sound familiar today? Sound pertinent today? Sound like an issue today? Scared to offend the world and loving the things of the world, the church, little by little, in a quiet compromise, became like the world that it existed in. Second thing that he has against him is listed in verse 15. It says, you also have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Uh, this is the second time we've seen the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It was a false teaching. It was probably an early form of Gnosticism. It was also a teaching that taught layers or statuses in the church. Really, it ended up with priest worship. Uh, it taught you have some in the church, and they're more spiritual than other folks in the church. You have some in the church, and they are higher up than others in the church. It was a false teaching. And it says there were some who were embracing the false teaching. It was not being addressed in the church. It was not being dealt with. And the church was quietly compromising with non-truth. But I have a few things against you. 
Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right, verse 16. I want you to listen to every word in verse 16. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, Jesus says, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I want you to notice something here. What's the church supposed to do when this happens? How's the church supposed to respond when this happens? Notice this. There are some, is what the Bible says, not all of them. There are some walking in worldliness. There are some, it's not all of them. There are some listening to false teachers. But I want you to notice here, the whole church is called to repent. The whole church is called to turn. Let me show you three things we need to know in this day from this verse. Three things we need to be sure of in this day from this verse. First thing is this. The church cannot tolerate, mix, or compromise with worldliness or false teaching. Absolutely none. The church cannot tolerate, mix, or compromise with worldliness or false teaching. Friends, and the church who does has lost its way. That is the warning that Jesus gives here. The church that does has lost its way. Second thing we learn here, we must be urgent to repair it. We must be urgent to repair it. Now notice here, knowing the damage, knowing the potential impact, Jesus says, repent or I'm coming to you quickly. That's what he says. I'm coming to you quickly. I can't allow this to grow. I can't allow this to spread. The, the damage is too great. Folks, whole churches are lost today. Whole churches are gone today because they entertained worldliness and they entertained false teaching. And I want to tell you, maybe it was good intended when it started. Maybe they overlooked it just to keep the peace. Maybe they, wasn't, they weren't up for another battle. Maybe it was just a little at the front. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a small issue. Maybe it was so popular they didn't want to push anybody out of the church, but they took it in and they quietly compromised. And a little worldliness entered in and a little false teaching entered in and they quietly compromised. And now they are shipwrecked. Third thing. First, the church cannot tolerate mixed compromise with worldliness or false teaching. Second, we must be quick, we must be urgent to correct it. The third thing is this, the answer is the truth. Today I watch folks, I watch churches and they wonder what's the answer. I watch churches, I watched a whole bunch this last week Maybe we got to get a committee together. Maybe we need to put a council together. Maybe we need to figure out what the answer is. I want to tell you this. Listen, it's very simple. The answer is 
the truth. Notice it says, Jesus says, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is going to rebuke them. He is going to judge them, and he is going to dispatch them according to his truth. In the same way, our answer is to turn to and to seek and to uphold the truth. I want you to hear me, and I want you to listen today. What we do, what we preach, what we teach, what we proclaim, what we defend, what we stand on, what we defer to, what we uphold, it is not a confession, and it is not a convention, and it is not a denomination, and it is not a persuasion. It is the truth of the word of God alone. We stand on the word of God. Well, don't we need to check the, con the confession of 1689? Well, we don't we need to see what the church fathers have said? Well, don't we need to see what our denomination might say? No, we go to the word of God. We stand on the word of God. Verse 17. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. The first thing in verse 17, there's a call to listen. He says, listen, hear. If you've got a set of ears, listen with them, hear. It's a call to listen. The last part of the verse is this. It's a word of encouragement. We've talked about it. The one that's overcome is the one that's trusted Christ. will overcome not in our willpower, not in our strength, but in the power of Christ. We're held by Christ, but there's a word of encouragement. Let me read the last of verse 17. And to him who overcomes, here's your encouragement. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone which no one knows, but he who receives it. it says they will receive the hidden manna. Now, there are several ideas what the hidden manna represents. Uh, I believe it is talking about the provision of God. In the Old Testament, God provided through the giving of the daily manna. It says here that God, those who overcome, God has provided for us as well. He's provided our Savior. He's provided our salvation all through the bread of life, Jesus and so I think that's talking about the provision of God. We have salvation in the bread of life, Jesus. It says, I will give him a white stone. Now, there are several ideas what that means. I'll tell you what they are as well. There are some that would say it is a stone marking purity and holiness. Well, I'll tell you, we have the purity of Christ. We wear the righteousness of Christ. That very well could be right. There is another idea that says it is a stone marking acceptance. Well, I'll tell you in the same way, we are accepted, made acceptable in the person of Jesus Christ. It very well could mean that. Some others say it is a stone to mark completion. When you finish the race, you are given this stone to mark completion. It could mean that. My favorite is this. In a gladiator's battle, they usually fought to the death. Now, that was the draw to come and watch it. They're going to fight to the death. It was also the incentive to fight, 
to not give up. It was the incentive to win. We're going to fight to the death. Well, when someone had showed great valor in the course of the competition, when they had showed great courage, the overseeing official could give them a white stone exempting them from a finish to the death. And so maybe they did some great act. Maybe they, maybe they did something that showed great valor. And so this official would give them a white stone which exempted them of fighting to the death. The Bible says we are not hurt from the second death. We know it was in Jesus' courage and Jesus' valor, his work, but we also see that he is the one who gives us the stone, exempting us from death. The last thing it says here, a new name. He gives them a white stone with a new name written on it. Now, it's interesting. No one can really explain this either. There's a whole lot of folks that try, but there's really no clear thing to say this is definitively the answer. Here's what we know. We know our names define us. We know our names describe us. Sometimes I meet somebody with a certain name. I already don't like them because I don't like that name. Some of you are saying, Toby. <laughs> we know names are personal. We know that they relate personally to an individual. I say a name, you think of an individual of a personal. Well, here we find our Savior Jesus, listen, gives us a new name. Those that have trusted Christ, those that have overcome in the power of Christ, on this day, he gives them a white stone. On the white stone is recorded a new name. Jesus gives each overcomer a new name, each one a new name. In Scripture, we see that happen to Jacob. He was named Israel. We also know that happened to Saul. He was renamed Paul. When I think about this, this is a fitting response, a fitting ending, and I'll tell you, a fitting beginning. It's very awesome. I want you to think about this. Our names right now are about us. And if I say your name, it's about you. And when I say your name, thoughts about you, ideas about you, a description of you comes to mind. Our names right now are about us. Some of our names have pride attached to them. And you'd say, well, Toby did that. Well, Toby was good at that. Well, Toby built this thing. Well, what a success Toby was in this thing. And so some of our names have pride tied to them. At the same time, some of our names have shame attached to them. Well, Toby failed here. Well, Toby hurt a lot of people right here. Well, Toby hurt the cause of God. Even when he knew better, he hurt the cause of our Savior, Jesus. Well, Jesus tells us here, on that day, just like that, both of those things, all of the pride and all of the shame will be gone, and who we are won't be all about us. Who we are will all be about him. We will have a new name given by Jesus, praise the Lord. All the pride is gone. Didn't matter. All the shame is gone. It didn't hold us down. We are new in Jesus. He gives us a new name. Praise the Lord. Another message to another church. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Let me tell you why it matters. 
It is because there is hope alone in the peace of Jesus Christ. There is hope alone in the truth of Jesus Christ. There is hope alone in the person of Jesus Christ. And if the world and if Satan can spin a tale that would make you miss Jesus, I want to tell you something, friend, you've missed everything. If the world and Satan would spin a tale that make you think there's something greater, something better, something other than Jesus, friend, you will have missed everything. There are two calls in this sermon. Listen to me. There's two calls to the word of Jesus today, and it's this. Listen and repent. Repent, we saw it the last couple of weeks. It means this, come home. Come home. Jesus says, listen, you haven't gone too far. Jesus says, listen, the truth you can trust it. You can be confident. Jesus says, listen, come home. Come home. Let's pray. During Father, we come. We praise you. I'm thankful for a gracious Savior that doesn't write us off, that doesn't cast us away, that doesn't assign us to a treadmill of works to let us toil away trying to impress somebody. Lord, thankful for a Savior that sees us that knows us, that loves us, that sees our faults, comes and makes a way for us in the cross of Calvary, who stands as the risen, resurrected Savior, and in great grace still says, come home, come home. Lord, I pray that we've listened today. I pray that we continue to listen. I pray that this word bears fruit today, this afternoon, tonight as we sleep, considering it, thinking about it. I pray, Lord, that we'll be a church that will stand, a church that will Uphold the good news of Jesus, the church that will be faithful even in the midst of persecution. And then, Lord, we come and we celebrate the Savior, the resurrected Savior, who says there is life not in any work that we did, but in his work. Who says we will have a new name. And our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. Our shame is removed from us. Who calls us to spend in great joy eternity with him. Lord, we love you for that. We praise you for that. I pray in this time of invitation that you have spoken, that you move. I pray if there's anybody that doesn't know you, I pray that they turn to you in faith today. I pray for some that are considering, some that are thinking. I pray, Lord, that you have spoken to their hearts today, and I pray that the response would glorify you. We ask that you would move. Lord, we give it to you, and I pray in Christ's name, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close our service with a time of response a time of invitation. And I want to tell you, Jesus was calling for a decision. Repent, listen. We're calling for a decision as well. Repent, listen to the Savior. If you've never trusted Christ, turn to him today. He'll save you. No sin is too great. No distance is too far. He loves you. He knows you. He sees you. In his grace, he's made a way for you. If you'll trust him today, not in church membership, not in some checklist you've got to impress people with, by faith in Christ, he'll save you today. If you've never trusted Christ, do it today. If you need more information, you meet me here at the front. We'll discuss it. We'll settle it today based upon God's word. If you're here today and you've trusted Christ, maybe the message that you're here to hear, here to hear today is this. God has a, a purpose for us in these days. These are critical days for his church. May we stand. May we uphold his good news. May we point to a lost and hurting world to the hope that we have in Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've put your faith in Christ but never followed in believer's baptism. Maybe you need to come as well and say, Lord, I want to testify. I want to, I want to signify what I believe of Christ, who I am in and through Christ. I want to testify to it. And you come, not as part of your salvation, 
but as a testimony to it, you come. And we'll set a day. It'll be a great day of celebration. Maybe you're looking for a church home and you've prayed about it and you believe God has led you here. You come as well. Together we'll stand for his glory, for his name's sake. Maybe you want to come pray at an altar in great humility. Maybe you want to come pray with me. The Bible says nothing is too big, nothing is too small. But you can't come to his throne of grace. As we stand to sing, I'm going to ask that no one would stir about or head for an exit. You pray for those who are making decisions. If you have a decision to make, you step out and you come on. I'll meet you here.